0: Hello, I'm Natalia Shpilova-Said. I'm host of New Books in East European Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm delighted to speak today with Stephen Siegel about his book *Mapmen: Transnational Lives and Deaths of Geographers in the Making of East-Central Europe, published by the University of Chicago Press in 2018. Stephen Siegel is professor of history at the University of Northern Colorado. He is the author of Mapping Europe's Borderlands, Russian Cartography in the Age of Empire, and Ukraine Under Western Eyes. Hello, Stephen.
1: Hi, nice how, to join you today. Uh, how are you? I'm fine, thanks. Uh,
0: so, uh, speaking about uh, Mapman, transnational lives and deaths of geographers in the making of East-Central uh, Europe, I have a question uh, about the name of the book, and you were probably asked this question numerous times. Um, at first glance, the phrase "mapman" appears as one word, uh, at least um, according to the design of the book. Uh, but um, the design of the book also makes it very clear to read the phrase as consisting of two distinct words. "Map" is in red, and "man" is in black. So you do provide your definition of "mapman" in the introductory part. But why is it this is so significant to underline some borderline? between uh, maps and man, and to combine these words at the same time. So I'm also curious about transnational lives and deaths. Uh, It can be read uh, as transnational, taking into consideration the material that you cover, but it can also be uh, read as uh, something on an existential and ideological levels.
1: So both of these are excellent questions. I have to begin by crediting my design and layout team at the University of Chicago Press. There were a couple of aesthetic ideas that I was hoping for with the book's design. And one is just brazen imitation of Matt Weiner's Mad Men, the series that everyone watches on Netflix. And so one can actually see Mad Men and Map Men coming, coming together on the cover in a very suggestive and and hopefully persuasive and subconscious way. The photo on the cover of the book was a photo of um, men who were redrawing Europe. This was from the National Geographic. Um, And the other part to your question is about the transnational lives and deaths. So one of my central aims in the book, and we can talk about this is really to capture the emotional lives of individuals who were drawing maps. And so it's not just human geography in a kind of abstract or conceptual way. It's the moods that people who were part of a certain generation had. And that generation stretches quite Widely in Central and Eastern Europe from, I would say, the 1850s or 1860s um, up through several generations in Germany, Poland, Hungary, the Czech Republic or Czechoslovakia, Slovakia, Ukraine, maybe into the into the 1950s and, in fact, well beyond Um, the transnational aspect of, of this is my own search since I worked on this book for The better part of six years for the personal bonds, the bonds of power, the bonds of knowledge, the expertise that united a certain generation at a particular moment in time um, in these countries of Central and Eastern Europe.
0: Um, So would you uh, tell a little bit about how you collected the data? Uh, Where did you travel and what archives did you use and where you worked? What personal maps? Probably you also made while working on this project. You just mentioned that uh, you worked for six years on this on this book
1: Yeah, I really started this project in 2010 and it was almost as if by accident I found myself in Baltimore I was a great fan of The Wire, um, and um, I had always wanted to spend some time at Johns Hopkins doing research. And one of the the funny things that I found at Johns Hopkins University and their special collections was the archive for one of their former presidents, Mm -hmm. Isaiah Bowman. And Isaiah Bowman left some very bizarre instructions, as I later found out, about people doing research in his archive, his personal papers. Um, he demanded, I found out from librarians and archivists, and, and later from people who knew the family, that only a person of international standing, who is a man who is 35 years old, could have access to all of his um, dirty laundry, have access Perfect. to his papers. Now, of course, that prompted my curiosity. Well, how can you know what is he what is he actually trying to um, trying to cover up? So um that le- that led me back to read um, a great biography which won the, the American uh, Association of American Geographers Prize in two thousand and four by the late Scottish geographer Neil Smith, uh, who was a, a student of David Harvey. And that's the American angle because Bowman, after all, was appointed as the chief territorial specialist for President Wilson. Um, He had all of these international contacts contacts with Polish, Hungarian, German, French, and many other geographers. Uh, So to answer your question about archives um, I used fewer archives in fewer countries than I did in Mapping Europe's Borderlands. Mm-hmm. There were ele- 11 languages and 24 archives in Mapping Europe's Borderlands, which was my dissertation and my first book. This one um, posed an enormous challenge, I think the biggest challenge of which was learning Hungarian oh. from scratch. I have no family background in Hungarian. Um, I did not speak Magyarul. Rul. I was... Um, someone who studied Polish and, and, and Italian. Um, and I knew German languages, Germanic languages. So, um, I began really taking a deep interest in Hungary. And although there are many parts of the book, which took me to Leipzig, Budapest, Krakow, um, I interviewed Romer's great granddaughter in Wrocław in the old town. Uh, I ended up in Lviv, um, Searching for the family of Rudnitsky and I found some amazing things. Anyway um, There are fewer archives and I think fewer languages, but this still was a six-year project and I came into it in all kinds of uncanny and and unexpected ways. uh, Yeah, I'd call it a Hungarian book. It's actually in many ways a Hungarian book um, which started with Orban and the 2000 teens and the turn toward illiberalism. And eventually, when I was finishing up my research after uh, my dawn, I was in Ukraine mm-hmm. in, uh, in the early part of 2015. So that's a significant part of the book.
0: Well, that's actually quite inspiring to learn a language in order to complete a project. How did you uh, handle that challenge? Did you take a class or did you just learn the language on its own? But from what I uh, heard, uh, Hungarian is considered to be one of the most um, difficult, challenging languages to learn. But I don't have any experience with Hungarian.
1: Well, Natalia, since you're interviewing me from Indiana University, Bloomington, I owe a (laughs) a a great deal... Of thanks to IU Bloomington and and, and my magnificent Hungarian teacher Valeria Varga. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. Um, I I just want to give a a shout out to (laughs) her and to the Swissel program, the the, uh, program in summer um, study for East European Eurasian languages. Uh, It was an incredible experience learning Hungarian with her. I don't know if I was her best student, probably not. Um, But, you know, I started as many Americans did who took an interest in Russia and Eastern Europe in the in the late 90s and even before, going through these intensive language programs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I actually studied Russian at Indiana in mm-hmm. 1998, oh, if yeah. you can imagine that, in a former century. Um, and so I studied Hungarian more formally. I really needed the grammatical training in order to be able to read letters um, and especially to... Uh, to work through correspondence. Mm-hmm. I worked through Teleki's very famous suicide note from August 3rd of 1941, when the Prime Minister of the country, Teleki, Count Teleki, committed suicide. And without that language knowledge, I really couldn't have done the archival research that I did for this book.
0: That's, that's amazing. So in your book, uh, you um, focus primarily on Germany, Poland, Hungary, and Ukraine. Uh, and the interest to these locations, so to speak, um, stem from your interest in Russia first. Do I, did I understand that correctly? So you, 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 uh, learn, you were studying the Russian language and probably your research was focused on Russia as well, as your first book is uh, Mapping Europe's Borderlands, Russian Cartography in the Age of Empire. And then little by little, uh, you developed... Your interest in
1: other places? Yeah, I think I think in terms of the development of the book and all of the chapters, I would not call it a Russian book. Um, my first Slavic language was actually Polish, mm-hmm. and I studied Ukrainian um, after I had learned Polish. In fact, after I had studied both Russian and Czech, um, I became involved with the Harvard Ukrainian Research Institute. I took Ukrainian for the first time formally in 2000.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. And um, one of the wonderful things that happened to me in the decade of the noughties um, was being commissioned by the Harvard Ukrainian Research Institute to write Ukraine Under Western Eyes. And that particular book got me Really, more deeply interested in the history of Ukrainian geography and cartography. Um, my major Ukrainian figure is Stepan Rudnitsky. There are, of course, other Ukrainians like Volodymyr Kubiyovych, who was many people forget trained as an ethnographer and a geographer. Um, you know, but I wanted I wanted to combine biography and life story with the visual saturation of maps what it what is it is actually like or was like for people like rudnitsky to found a national school of geography and cartography as he tried to do for ukraine Um, and we can talk about his life trajectory and some of the others but it's not as much of a russian book the russian revolution is certainly present soviet policies of the 1920s particularly vis-a-vis Ukraine, are, are present, and, of course, Rudnitsky um, was a victim of Stalin's purges uh, when he was killed en masse with other members of the, the humanistic and technical intelligentsia at, at Solovki in 1937. <laughs>
0: Uh, well, I have a few questions for you uh, about the uh, um, material which is presented in the book. But first of all, I would like to ask you to uh, describe what a map uh, is for you. Because my understanding is a map for you is not just some piece of paper that shows a territory of, of a country, but it's more than that. Um, it's, it's not a crystallized item uh, that stays... Stable uh, it constantly evolves and changes and I would also say that we can have a couple of versions of maps Especially today with all these body changes, which are connected with some political turmoil
1: Yeah, I, I think I'm a little bit unusual in the way that I conceive of maps and think about maps if there's a baseline I think of maps as fantasies. Mm -hmm. And beyond that, there are all of the conventional things. Maps are texts. Maps are tools. Maps are part of the the gadgetry of um, millennial fetishism. Um, Maps enable you to get from A to B. But when I think of maps, I really do think of craftsmanship and aesthetics. So a couple of the examples I, I used toward the end of my book are the very famous surrealist map of the world, which was an avant-garde project um, showing islands in 1929 and blowing things like fixed scale and fixed proportion um, up, uh, changing it to the level of fantasy and, and, and prejudice. A good, another good example I would give um, would be the avant-garde sculptor whose name is David Cherny, who's a Czech sculptor who was commissioned by the EU in Brussels to create uh, an installation of a map. And he called it not Europa, but Entropa, <laughs> in which he had every country represented by something that was completely banal and and kitschy and in bad taste so you know um romania was a dracula themed amusement park um S- switzerland was a box of toblerone chocolate um italy was a football field with um very muscular men masturbating on the field um and, and of course this this particular map because it is a map is still a picture and a text and a tool it's it's a, it's a way to instrumentalize european integration but it's funny, it's ironic, it's abstract, and ultimately it was too outré um, for Brussels. And they, in 2009, when he designed this exhibit, they, they tried, um, in fact, to, to take it down. So when I think of maps, I, I do think you do, you do need basic things in order to make a map. You need a scale, you need a key you need a projection, but it doesn't have to be in that formal Cartesian kind of way where you're point plotting, and that's that's all you do. Or in GPS, where you're just trying to get people from one location to the other. I really do think of maps in the sense of, of fantasy.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you, um, your book includes uh, the stories of five uh, geographers or mapmen, and you already mentioned um, a few of them. Uh, Would you briefly talk about each of them and maybe um, would you mention which one was the most challenging in the project?
1: Sure, I'll try to make this into a short question because I ended up going through all of their papers and all of their (laughs) files. And and for someone like the Polish geographer I study, it was 82 volumes, Um, you know, uh, So my five people, the the protagonists, primary men in the book, are Professor Albrecht Penck. He was a professor uh, who was born in in Germany near Leipzig. He is probably most famous for uh, being a geomorphologist and for proposing in Bern in 1981 the one-to-one-million map of the world. This is something, of course, which becomes lampooned by writers like Umberto Eco. Um, he was the chair of, of geography at what's now Humboldt University in Berlin. Um, he was on exchange to the United States, to Columbia University before World War One. He became a longtime friend of uh, people like Isaiah Bowman, whom he met at Harvard. Um, and I think what's interesting about Pank as a professor is that he, he falls within the what Germans will call the folkish tradition of of conservative and colonial geography. He supported both um, the Kaiser during World War I and, as it turns out, and I talk about this because it's very complicated, Hitler during World War II. So, um, Hank, after all of the losses of the Hohenzollern Empire, the loss of colonial Germany and its outposts, was one of the primary advocates of revisionism. Um, in the German political and social system of the Weimar Republic. And he died at age 87, um, fleeing from, in fact, from Berlin to Prague, uh, where he died in uh, in, in 1945. Um, the second geographer is Eugeniusz Romer of Poland. I write about him in, in some of my earlier work. He was born 1871, died 1954, he survived two occupations during World War II by hiding in uh, a monastery in Lwów for three years. Um, he really was, in many respects, the founder of modern Polish geography and cartography. He was the first chair in the modern sense um, in at the University of Lemberg, what was Jan Kazimierz, what's now Ivan Franco, uh, in 1911. But he comes from an old, very old Schlachta family going back to the 15th century. And I think one thing I learned from, from Romer, who was an aristocrat, rather than from Penck, who was very much a bourgeois, Mandarin type of academic, was that Romer's mental map went back centuries. In fact, like 15 generations, stretching across all of the family's aristocratic estates from north to south. Um, Romer drew a lot of the base maps for Poland. He was the go-to expert in the Polish delegation after World War I. Uh, He was the most important cartographer for the Treaty of Riga in 1921. Um, And he was an internationalist. He actually believed in a so-called resurrected or reborn Poland, but he tried to broker friendships and, and in many ways perform like Paderewski performed in Paris for the Polish cause. He was very anti-Ukrainian. In fact, this was so surprising to me. In fact, even more shocking than I thought um, as I looked through all of his sources. The Ukrainian geographer we can talk about, his name was Stepan Rudnitsky, born in East Galicia in 1877, died, as I mentioned, a victim of uh, of the purges. Um, there are several interesting things about Rudnitsky. He had a doctorate. He competed with, with uh, Romer. He actually advocated a greater Ukraine in a kind of colonial and great power way. Um, he appealed to diasporas. He worked for some time for the Union for the Liberation, uh, I forget what it's called, the Union for the Liberation of, of Ukrainians in New Jersey. It was the sort of mirror image of the of the same organization that existed in Vienna during World War One. Anyway, he drew some of the very first maps in Ukrainian, mm-hmm. Um, and his hero was um, Mikhail Hrushevsky. Khrushchevsky was one of his biggest supporters and patrons. And Hrushevsky hoped that Rudnitsky could do for geography what Hrushevsky had done for history, mm-hmm. uniting Ruthenians, Ukrainians on both sides of, the, of this bridge river. It didn't turn out that way. Rudnitsky ended up um, migrating to Kharkiv, Soviet Kharkiv, where he hoped to start a geographical institute for the technical Intelligency It didn't work out that way. Bowman, I mentioned, was absolutely fascinating. He was a student of William Morris Davis. He had traveled to South America. Uh, he worked for the uh, Foreign Affairs Journal. He worked for Wilson's Inquiry. He became the president of Johns Hopkins University from 1935 to 1948 and died in Baltimore in, in 1950. Um, and the last one is Count Paul Teleki. He, he's, my, he's my Hungarian, but he's really a Transylvanian aristocrat um, born in Budapest. His history goes back at least 17 generations. Um, he was a complete amateur. He, he had traveled to Africa. In fact, he had been to the Sudan. Um, he took up a, a really deep interest in early modern European cartography, and particularly he was fascinated by Japan. Um, he was a Japanophile, like in the way that H.G. Wells and sort of artists in the 19 teens um, were, were Japanophiles, although he knew no Japanese. Um, and he became prime minister of Hungary twice, uh, after really after his career as a geographer, um, twice prime minister, uh, first during um, the regime right after World War I and after Béla Kun and the Communist Revolution, and then. He was prime minister from nineteen uh, thirty nine up until his suicide in April of nineteen forty one. So I'm fascinated by these three individuals. There, there are others. You know, um, there are there are wives, there are daughters, there are many others that I describe who are um, part of their saga. Uh, but I tried to create a five headed monster and to tell the story in the book of, of their lives and work.
0: While you were doing this research, did you come across any? Female characters uh, who were main uh, characters in creating maps.
1: Well, I did, and I I get asked this question a a lot, and I think there's there's more research that clearly needs to be done on it. Uh, I'll give a couple of examples. So, um, first, in Hungary, there were women who were part of the Hungarian Geographical Society, Mm -hmm. and they were um, in many ways continuing a colonial legacy so the hungarian geographical society starts in 1872 Um, older ones will include the russian geographical society or the imperial russian geographical society 1845 the royal geographical society 1830 the berlin one and the paris one from the 1820s there were plenty of women in the hungarian geographical society who were explorers In the Polish case, I found that uh, Romer had a number of women who became involved in in what was called in the 1920s school cartography and school geography. So um, Romer opened a cartographic firm which was called Czonsnica Atlas, Princess Atlas Firm, and and it was one of the largest of, of those types of cartographic firms in Europe. Geographical and and cartographic work in the 1920s within the Polish school system, um, and and I think, in the way that he conceived it, the purpose of drawing maps was to create Polonized Poles,
0: mm-hmm.
1: not Ukrainians, but Polonized Poles, not Germans, but Polonized Poles, and and there was a kind of ethnocentrism, but it was an ethnocentrism that was premised on the idea that others, multi-ethnic others, multi-confessional others, would assimilate to a greater Poland. Um, And and so there were a number of Polish-speaking women who, Polonophone women, who ended up working uh, with Romer, the founding of his journals, and and, and working in the cartographic firms. Um, The other parts of the story are are really the the daughters and, Mm -hmm. and the granddaughters. So these were not liberal feminist men. <laughs> and I, I think this, there, there's, there's, really, there's really no way around this. One has to be absolutely honest about their misogyny and their racism and their colonial knowledge. This point really, I hope, does come across in the book. These were nasty beasts, many of them. Um, Bowman had two boys. He sought to give them the most elite education possible. Um, you know, I mean, he was a farm boy who who grew up in um, in Ontario. As a matter of fact, and across the border to Canada, um, he wanted his two sons to have a premier education for them to follow in his footsteps, and eventually, as I showed, to try and become geographers, which one did. But his daughter Olive was just destined to be a housewife, as as he as he put it. Um, and Bowman even told his sons, and I found this in the letters, that they should marry well and they should find a woman to travel around the world with them and like have babies so though those men that i described were not exactly open in any kind of professionalization way although if you dig a little bit deeper you can see how they began to start in the 1920s to conceive of a role for women as teachers and especially for women as, as geography teachers or for people who are working, for women who are working in cartography firms and shops.
0: Well, um, I just wanted to say that it's a real pleasure to read your uh, book and for many reasons. Um, it's very rich in uh, bibliography, very rich in historical facts, in biography facts. And of course, your writing style deserves a separate uh, compliment. Uh, but uh, what... I discovered for myself as well is that uh, you really um, open this world as you as you mentioned this fantasy of uh, map making where map making is not some uh, science but it's some occupation uh, it's one's passion so to speak and you feel actually these lines which are incorporated in borders which are incorporated in maps as moving and as well if if, if we could use that word alive so we actually feel them very fluid in a fluid way uh, and I as I was reading your your book I was thinking about your characters that you describe but I was also thinking about them not only as representatives of that country for which they create uh, maps but also those countries that are outside those borders in other words uh, I was wondering about the gaze of the outsider of their country, so could you just uh, tell us a little bit about how they were perceived by outsiders, but those who were put behind those uh, borders?
1: Yeah, that's such a great question, Natalia, and thank you for the for the compliment. Um, the writing style. One of my goals is to make this book accessible and and hopefully translatable um, into the languages and into the countries that I, I study. So. Um, you know, I have been lecturing, um, and if if the if the plague is not upon us forever, I hope to continue to talk about it um, in, in Hungary and in Germany and Poland and Ukraine. Uh, I was supposed to give the 100th anniversary lecture for the Treaty of Trianon in mm. Hungary, but to give it in Vienna for the Wiesenthal Center. Mm. And, and I think this is a good segue to think of the gaze that, that you're thinking about, because If you look at the Hungarian maps, and I'll use those as my example, clearly Hungarian um, geographers, especially those of a revisionist bent, who are supporting the idea that Hungary was dismembered, Hungary... Those revisionists in in the 1920s are really trying to establish contacts with others in the diaspora and abroad, especially in North America... Don't forget, there are 3.3 million Hungarians who, as a result of this treaty in June of 1920, end up outside of the borders. And so, you know, people like to speak in cliches sometimes about how the war didn't end in 1918. Well, yes, everybody knows that. Um, also, the story of, of refugees and displacement and long-term displacement, um, I, th- I think, is a story that needs to be told. Um So what the Hungarian revisionists tried to do was to create as great a Hungary as possible. They were wedded to this idea. And in fact, Teleki himself, I found out, was wedded to the idea all the way through the first and second Vienna Awards in 1938 and 1940. um, While he was trying to create a kind of diplomacy between fascism and what was left of liberal democracy in the 1930s, what he really wanted to do was to make Hungary as big as possible, a greater Hungary as big as possible, and that meant regaining territory that was lost to Czechoslovakia, Romania, and Yugoslavia. In fact, right up, really right up until the end of his his life, that was his that was his fixed idea. Um, the other part of your question, the gazes across borders, well, you know. <laughs> geographers lost their international community in 1914 and, and more deeply in the nationalist universe of 1918 and 1919. Ukraine was, you know, under the occupation, one might say of of somewhere between nine and and 11 governments between 1917 and, and 1922. Um, so, What this meant for someone like Rudnitsky was that he had to create an alternative career because he could not be a professor uh, at Jan Kazimierz in the Second Republic of Poland. He was a diaspora Ukrainian. He actually wrote, published in Czech. Um, His family was German-speaking. He was absolutely fluent in German. He um, kept up his German correspondences with with prominent geographers like, like Pank or Bruckner or Krebs. And eventually, when Rudnitsky was granted the opportunity to return, quote-unquote, to Ukraine, his return was actually to a city he had never visited, but was then considered part of Ukraine, and that was in Soviet Kharkiv, Kharkov, Kharkiv, in 19, 1925. So these borders had, had absolutely changed, and, and I think, you know, beneath the science of Wissenschaft, or the science of nauka are, are some monumental changes in, in the lives of these individuals. One more sort of footnote to this. I, I like doing family history, mm-hmm. in, in, sometimes in an old-fashioned kind of way, but it's how we get the stories um, and, and the stories all have to be fact-checked because—and <laughs> <laughs> it's impossible, right? It is absolutely impossible. Rudnitsky is a good example of this. There, there are plenty of lies and there are plenty of, of sort of mendacities and prevarications, but there are also myths that he actually really believed about himself. And, and he faced some very tumultuous years, having been di- displaced from a city where he thought he could make his career as Ukrainian— having lost his wife to cancer, his wife died at the age of 35. You know, these are some of the things that don't make appearances in, strictly speaking, scientific um, Kurzbiografie. Mm -hmm. They they also really deserve a place. And I wanted to give the full kind of three-dimensional picture of the humans um, behind the maps.
0: Yeah, I have uh, another question about additional lines, borders, whatever we call those, uh, your uh, spelling choice for some locations. In your previous answer, you mentioned uh, Kharkov, Kharkiv. Um In another answer, you also mentioned Lviv, 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 Lemberg. And I believe that this spelling slash spelling also adds some additional meaning to your project as well.
1: Yeah, I, I mean... It's really hard to make a choice. Mm -hmm. And and when you're making a choice, you will face a charge that you're being a nationalist Mm -hmm. or a nation builder. Uh, I think in some ways it's absolutely true that I am a Ukrainian nation builder. I'm certainly engaged in Ukrainian studies and Ukrainian history. But my origin story in trying to think about Ukrainian relations is really through the lens of all of the people's in the lands that might be considered Boplan's Ukraine, mm-hmm. and and if not Boplan's Ukraina or Ukraina, then 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 maybe even something else. You know, even when we call um, Galicia Galicia, it's Galitzin or Galicin Volhynian. Um, I had to make some some choices, certainly uh, with cities like Lviv, Lviv, Lemberg, Leopold, um, but I. I think i was trying to be fair to the mentality the, the mental mapping even mm-hmm. the psychological mapping of the individuals and and in that way i'm less of a person who believes in discursive analysis and more of a person who believes in in intent i, I want to get i want to get how the person sees himself or herself through the map and i think that's incredibly important for um people who are actually using, using maps for both war and peace building purposes. Um, there are many ways to, to kind of cast or script Rudnitsky. One of the ways that you can certainly script Rudnitsky or cast him as, as, as a, as a, as a a player on stage is as a Ukrainian nationalist, but that doesn't explain his knowledge of German, French, Russian, Mm -hmm. um, He he wrote in German and Czech. He had debates with Polish geographers. Um, In many ways, he he picked up on the long intellectual history of of German climatology, volcanology, um, meteorology, those sorts of things that that virtually vanished during the geopolitical turns of of the 1920s, um, much less the 2010s. So... um, I, I try. I try to be fair without offering hagiography or apologetics. I, I actually think um, I am quite fair to all of the prejudices um, held by people like, like Rudnitsky, um, for whom, toward the end of his life, he, he didn't. He didn't really have a city.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: He, he couldn't go back to Lemberg. Mm-hmm. Um, he even couldn't go back to Ukraine. Uh, you know, he was exiled to the Soviet hinterland um, after his arrest in 1933 Uh, So, you know, the places also become signifiers of of lost countries um, and and all of the moods and all of all of I would say the emotions that that emigres often have for for places to which they can't return Mm
0: -hmm. Uh, So there is a very young Uh, insightful statement in your book. It's page one um, uh, one ninety four. Places and maps are layered with meaning, and uh, what you just described, I think, illustrates very well what is meant by this uh, statement. Um, is your current project in any way connected with um, with with Mapman?
1: Well, thanks for the question. I, I love to plug current projects. <laughs> um, I, I'm, wor- I'm working on. I'm working on a couple of different ones, and uh, I, can, I can describe what I'm doing in a moment. Um, I'm really impressed by scholars who are micro-historians of a place. Mm-hmm. So um, the house on, on Ujazdovskia Street, you know, right down to the address, or the Donmanabarishmai, the house of government. Mm-hmm. Um, people who have actually zeroed in on, on an address and I, I tried to do that with Romer because he had a house. It represented all of the bourgeois dreams of Poland on Ulica on Dwugosza 25. It was in Soviet occupied Lwów, Lwów, Limburg, Lviv. He had this house to which he could never return after 1941. And for a lot of Poles, of course, who lost their Polish. Um, Galicia, this is, this is of course something which conjures all kinds of, of emotions and, and sometimes irrational politics. So uh, as a way of describing my current projects, I'm working on three different things right now. Um, one, I'm working on a transnational biography of the um, Ukrainian assassin Miroslav mm-hmm. um And I'm telling the story of Sichinsky, who uh, killed Count Pototsky in Stanislavov um, in, in 1908, uh, ended up arrested, ended up escaping from prison, and then into North America. He lived a very long life and died in Michigan um, in 1975. Uh, excuse me, 1979. Um, As for mapmen, my new project, one of them is a transnational history of airlines and aviation. So Mm -hmm. I'm interested in the mapping of airspace and the control of airspace and how airlines control or don't control this and how international law, especially since the 1940s, um, attempts to regulate it well into the Cold War. The closest project I have to MapMen is really not so much a book, but a gazetteer. Mm -hmm. Um, And it is a gazetteer of fantasy places. Uh, So, you know, the highbrow or let's say high modernist fantasy places everybody knows, Kakania. But there are lowbrow places like Charlie Chaplin's Bacteria, right? Um, Or, you know, um, Vaishnoria or San Marcos. Um, these are all sort of um, or Banderastadt, you know the sort of the nickname right these very colloquial nicknames that, that one begins to hear Um I, I, I'm interested actually as a Ukrainist and a Ukrainian history, historian in the long history of fantasy maps and fictive maps mm-hmm, mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. you know how for instance what what happened let's say um, when a new country was invented by a slippage of the pen. The New York Times invented a new Kyrgyz, Kyrgyzstan, and it went viral, and on wiki there was a new history with maps of this fictional country that was created. You know, Putin's Novorossiya, which of course is a fictional country, but does have a history, going back to the imperial period in Catherine the Great, and, and at least through the early 19th century – how do those fictional countries circulate, gain um, sort of purchase? Um, I've managed for this gazetteer, which I think will be a collaborate, collaborative digital humanities project to mm-hmm. gather up the names of 500 different countries, dif- different fictional countries, which were um, invented uh, since the late uh, late 1880s and 1890s you know, I mean, it comes out of Yiddish literature as well. The name for Kiev people will sometimes forget is, is, is Mm Yehupats, right? Mm -hmm. Um, or, you know, for Vilna, the Jerusalem of the North, Mm -hmm. um, there, there are plenty of places that I think are fictional, but gain more power just through circulating. And I think it's a a very important exercise to understand how and why and where they're circulating and, and for what. So, uh, that is a project of, about place and, and space that I would say derives from map man.
0: Yeah, that's, that's uh, fascinating. Well, good luck on your uh, projects, and I'm um, uh, looking forward to your new publications and to your new book, and I hope that we'll talk about your new books in the near future. Uh, thank you so much for your book, uh, for this excellent research, and thank you for guiding us through these uh, labyrinths of uh, map fantasy. Thank you so much, Steen. My pleasure. Today I spoke with Steven Siegel about his book Mapman Transnational Lives and Deaths of Geographers in the Making of East Central Europe, published by the University of Chicago Press in twenty eighteen. Thank you for listening to the East European Studies podcast in the New Books Network.